Chapter Eight of The Hour of the Dragon by Robert E. Howard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight Dying Embers. The countryside about Tarantia had escaped the fearful ravaging of the more easterly provinces. There were evidences of the march of a conquering army in broken hedges, plundered fields, and looted granaries, but torch and steel had not been loosed wholesale. There was one grim splotch on the landscape, a charred expanse of ashes and blackened stone where, Conan knew, had once stood the stately villa of one of his snotchest supporters. The king dared not openly approach the Galanus farm, which lay only a few miles from the city. In the twilight he rode through the extensive woodland, where he sighted a keeper's lodge through the trees. Dismounting and tying his horse, he approached the thick, arched door, with the intention of sending the keeper after Servius. He did not know what enemies the manor-house might be sheltering. He had seen no troops, but they might be quartered all over the countryside. But as he drew near, he saw the door open, and a compact figure in silk hose and richly embroidered doublet stride forth and turn up a path that wound away through the woods. Servius! At the low call, the master of the plantation wheeled with a startled exclamation. His hand flew to the short hunting sword at his hip and he recoiled from the tall gray steel figure standing in the dusk before him. "'Who are you?' he demanded. "'What is your—' "'Mithra!' His breath hissed inward, and his ruddy face paled. "'Avant!' he ejaculated. "'Why have you come back from the gray lands of death to terrify me? I was always your true liegeman in your lifetime.' "'And I still expect you to be,' answered Conan." Stop trembling, man, I'm flesh and blood. Sweating with uncertainty, Servius approached and stared into the face of the mail-clad giant, and then, convinced of the reality of what he saw, he dropped to one knee and doffed his plumed cap. Your Majesty, truly this is a miracle passing belief. The great bell in the citadel has told your dirge days are gone. Men say you died at Valkia crushed under a million tons of earth and broken granite. "'It was another in my harness,' grunted Conan. "'But let us talk later. If there is such a thing as a joint of beef on your board—' "'Forgive me, my lord,' cried Servius, springing to his feet. "'The dust of travel is grey on your mail, and I keep you standing here without rest or sup. Mithra, I see well enough now that you are alive.' But I swear, when I turned and saw you, standing all gray and dim in the twilight, the marrow of my knees turned to water. It is an ill thing to meet a man you thought dead in the woodland at dusk. Bid the keeper see to my steed, which is tied behind yonder oak, requested Conan, and Servius nodded, drawing the king up the path. The patrician, recovering from his supernatural fright, had become extremely nervous. "'I will send a servant from the manor,' he said. "'The keeper is in his lodge, but I dare not trust even my servants in these days. "'It is better that only I know of your presence.' Approaching the great house that glimmered dimly through the trees, he turned aside into a little used path that ran between close-set oaks, whose intertwining branches formed a vault overhead. 
shutting out the dim light of the gathering dusk. Servius hurried on through the darkness without speaking, and with something resembling panic in his manner, and presently led Conan through a small side door into a narrow, dimly illuminated corridor. They traversed this in haste and silence, and Servius brought the king into a spacious chamber with a high oak-beamed ceiling and richly paneled walls. Logs flamed in the wide fireplace, for there was a frosty edge to the air, and a great meat pasty in a stone platter stood smoking on a broad mahogany board. Servius locked the massive door and extinguished the candles that stood in a silver candlestick on the table, leaving the chamber illuminated only by the fire on the hearth. "'Your pardon, Your Majesty,' he apologized. "'These are perilous times. Spies lurk everywhere. It were better that none be able to peer through the windows and recognize you. This pasty, however, is just from the oven, as I intended supping on my return from talk with my keeper. If Your Majesty would deign—' "'The light is sufficient.' grunted Conan, seating himself with scant ceremony and drawing his poniard. He dug ravenously into the luscious dish and washed it down with great gulps of wine from grapes grown in Servius's vineyards. He seemed oblivious to any sense of peril, but Servius shifted uneasily on his settle by the fire, nervously fingering the heavy gold chain about his neck. He glanced continually at the diamond panes of the casement gleaming dimly in the firelight, and cocked his ear toward the door, as if half expecting to hear the pad of furtive feet in the corridor without. Finishing his meal, Conan rose and seated himself on another settle before the fire. "'I won't jeopardize you long by my presence, Servius,' he said abruptly. "'Dawn will find me far from your plantation.' "'My lord!' Servius lifted his hands in expostulation, but Conan waved his protests aside. I know your loyalty and your courage. Both are above reproach. But if Valerius has usurped my throne, it would be death for you to shelter me if you were discovered. I am not strong enough to defy him openly, admitted Servius. The fifty minute arms I could lead to battle would be but a handful of straws. You saw the ruins of Aemilius Scavonus's plantation? Conan nodded, frowning darkly. He was the strongest patrician in the province, as you know. He refused to give his allegiance to Valerius. The Nemedians burned him in the ruins of his own villa. After that, the rest of us saw the futility of resistance, especially as the people of Tarantia refused to fight. We submitted, and Valerius spared our lives, though he levied a tax upon us that will ruin many. But what could we do? We thought you were dead. Many of the barons had been slain, others taken prisoner. The army was shattered and scattered. You have no heir to take the crown. There was no one to lead us. Was there not Count Trocero of Pointain? demanded Conan harshly. Servius spread his hands helplessly. It is true that his general Prospero was in the field with a small army, retreating before Amalric, he urged his men to rally to his banner. But with your majesty dead, men remembered old wars and civil brawls, and how Trocero and his Pointanians once rode through these provinces, even as Amalric was riding now with torch and sword. The barons were jealous of Trocero, 
Some men, spies of Valerius perhaps, shouted that the Count of Pointaine intended seizing the crown for himself. Old sectional hates flared up again. If we had had one man with dynastic blood in his veins, we would have crowned and followed him against Amedia. But we had none. The barons who followed you loyally would not follow one of their own number, each holding himself as good as his neighbor, each fearing the ambitions of the others. You were the cord that held the faggots together. When the cord was cut, the faggots fell apart. If you had had a son, the barons would have rallied loyally to him, but there was no point for their patriotism to focus upon. The merchants and commoners, dreading anarchy and return of feudal days when each baron was his own law, cried out that any king was better than none, even Valerius, who was at least of the blood of the old dynasty. There was no one to oppose him when he rode up at the head of his steel-clad hosts, with the scarlet dragon of Demedia floating over him, and rang his lance against the gates of Tarantia. Nay, the people threw open the gates and knelt in the dust before him. They had refused to aid Prospero in holding the city. They said they had rather be ruled by Valerius than by Trocero. They said, truthfully, that the barons would not rally to Trocero, but that many would accept Valerius. They said that by yielding to Valerius they would escape the devastation of civil war and the fury of the Nemedians. Prospero rode southward with his ten thousand knights, and the horsemen of the Nemedians entered the city a few hours later. They did not follow him. There remained to see that Valerius was crowned in Tarantia. Then the old witch's smoke showed the truth, muttered Conan, feeling a queer chill along his spine. Amalric crowned Valerius? Aye, in the coronation hall, with the blood of slaughter scarcely dried on his hands. And do the people thrive under his benevolent rule? asked Conan with angry irony. He lives like a foreign prince in the midst of a conquered land, answered Servius bitterly. His court is filled with Nemedians. The palace troops are of the same breed, and a large garrison of them occupy the citadel. Aye, the hour of the dragon has come at last. Nemedians swagger like lords through the streets. Women are outraged and merchants plundered daily, and Valerius either can or will make no attempts to curb them. Nay, he is but their puppet, their figurehead. Men of sense knew he would be, and the people are beginning to find it out. Amalric has ridden forth with a strong army to reduce the outlying provinces where some of the barons have defied him, but there is no unity among them. Their jealousy of each other is stronger than their fear of Amalric. He will crush them one by one. Many castles and cities, realizing that, have sent in their submission. Those who resist fare miserably. The Nemedians are glutting their long hatred, and their ranks are swelled by Aquilonians whom fear, gold, or necessity of occupation are forcing into their armies. It is a natural consequence. Conan nodded somberly, staring at the red reflections of the firelight on the richly carved oaken panels. Aquilonia has a king instead of the anarchy they feared, said Servius at last. Valerius does not protect his subjects against his allies. 
Hundreds who would not pay the ransom imposed upon them have been sold to the Kothic slave traders. Conan's head jerked up and a lethal flame lit his blue eyes. He swore gustily, his mighty hands nodding into iron hammers. Aye, white men sell white men and white women as it was in the feudal days. In the palaces of Shem and of Turan, they will live out the lives of slaves. Valerius is king, but the unity for which the people looked, even though of the sword, is not complete. Gunderland in the north and Pointain in the south are as yet unconquered, and there are unsubdued provinces in the west, where the border barons have the backing of the Bosonian bowmen. Yet these outlying provinces are no real menace to Valerius. They must remain on the defensive, and will be lucky if they are able to keep their independence. Here Valerius and his foreign knights are supreme. Let him make the best of it, then, said Conan grimly. His time is short. The people will rise when they learn that I'm alive. We'll take Tarantia back before Amalric can return with his army. Then we'll sweep these dogs from the kingdom. Servius was silent. The crackle of the fire was loud in the stillness. Well, exclaimed Conan impatiently, why do you sit with your head bent, staring at the hearth? Do you doubt what I have said? Servius avoided the king's eye. What mortal man can do, you will do, your majesty he answered. I have ridden behind you in battle, and I know that no mortal being can stand before your sword. What then? Servius drew his fur-trimmed jupon closer about him, and shivered in spite of the flame. Men say your fall was occasioned by sorcery, he said presently. What then? What mortal can fight against sorcery? Who is this veiled man who commutes at midnight with Valerius and his allies, as men say, who appears and disappears so mysteriously? Men say in whispers that he is a great magician who died thousands of years ago, but has returned from death's gray lands to overthrow the king of Aquilonia and restore the dynasty of which Valerius is heir. What matter? exclaimed Conan angrily. I escaped from the devil-haunted pits of Belverus and from the diabolism of the mountains. If the people rise, Servius shook his head. Your staunchest supporters in the eastern and central provinces are dead, fled, or imprisoned. Gunterland is far to the north, Pointain far to the south. The Bosonians have retired to their marches far to the west. It would take weeks to gather and concentrate these forces, and before that could be done, each levy would be attacked separately by Amalric and destroyed. But an uprising in the central provinces would tip the scales for us, exclaimed Conan. We could seize Tarantia and hold it against Amalric until the Guntermen and Poitanians could get here. Servius hesitated, and his voice sank to a whisper. Men say you died accursed. Men say this veiled stranger cast a spell upon you to slay you and break your army. The great bell has told your dirge. Men believe you to be dead. And the central provinces would not rise, even if they knew you lived. 
They would not dare. Sorcery defeated you at Valkia. Sorcery brought the news to Tarantia, for that very night men were shouting of it in the streets. A Nemedian priest loosed black magic again in the streets of Tarantia to slay men who still were loyal to your memory. I myself saw it. Armed men dropped like flies and died in the streets in a manner no man could understand. And the lean priest laughed and said, I am only Altaro, only an acolyte of Erastes, who is but an acolyte of him who wears the veil. Not mine is the power. The power but works through me. Well, said Conan harshly, is it not better to die honorably than to live in infamy? Is death worse than oppression, slavery, and ultimate destruction? When the fear of sorcery is in, reason is out, replied Servius. The fear of the central provinces is too great to allow them to rise for you. The outlying provinces would fight for you, but the same sorcery that smote your army at Valkia would smite you again. The Nemedians hold the broadest, richest, and most thickly populated sections of Aquilonia, and they cannot be defeated by the forces which might still be at your command. You would be sacrificing your loyal subjects uselessly. In sorrow I say it, but it is true. King Conan, you are a king without a kingdom. Conan stared into the fire without replying. A smoldering log crashed down among the flames without a bursting shout of sparks. It might have been the crashing ruin of his kingdom. Again, Conan felt the presence of a grim reality behind the veil of material illusion. He sensed again the inexorable drive of a ruthless fate. A feeling of furious panic tugged at his soul, a sense of being trapped, and a red rage that burned to destroy and kill. Where are the officials of my court? he demanded at last. Palantides was sorely wounded at Valkia, was ransomed by his family, and now lies in his castle at Atalus. He will be fortunate if he ever rides again. Publius, the chancellor, has fled the kingdom in disguise. No man knows whither. The council has been disbanded. Some were imprisoned, some banished. Many of your loyal subjects have been put to death. Tonight, for instance, the Countess Albiona dies under the headsman's axe. Conan started and stared at Servius with such anger smoldering in his blue eyes that the patrician shrank back. Why? Because she would not become the mistress of Valerius. Her lands are forfeit, her henchmen sold into slavery, and at midnight, in the iron tower, her head must fall. Be advised, my king, to me you will ever be my king, and flee before you are discovered. In these days none is safe. Spies and informers creep among us, betraying the slightest deed or word of discontent as treason and rebellion. If you make yourself known to your subjects, it will only end in your capture and death. My horses and all the men that I can trust are at your disposal. Before dawn you can be far from Tarantia and well out on your way toward the border. 
If I cannot aid you to recover your kingdom, I can at least follow you into exile. Conan shook his head. Servius glanced uneasily at him as he sat staring into the fire, his chin propped on his mighty fist. The firelight gleamed redly on his steel mail, on his baleful eyes. They burned in the firelight like the eyes of a wolf. Servius was again aware, as in the past, and now more strongly than ever, of something alien about the king. That great frame under the male mesh was too hard and supple for a civilized man. The elemental fire of the primitive burned in those smoldering eyes. Now the barbaric suggestion about the king was more pronounced, as if in his extremity the outward aspects of civilization were stripped away to reveal the primordial core. Conan was reverting to his pristine type. He did not act as a civilized man would act under the same conditions, nor did his thoughts run in the same channels. He was unpredictable. It was only a stride from the king of Aquilonia to the skin-clad slayer of the Cimmerian hills. "'I'll ride to Pointain, if it may be,' Conan said at last. "'But I'll ride alone. "'And I have one last duty to perform as king of Aquilonia.' "'What do you mean, Your Majesty?' asked Servius, shaken by a premonition. "'I'm going into Tarantia after Albiona tonight.' answered the king. I've failed all my other loyal subjects, it seems. If they take her head, they can have mine, too. This is madness, cried Servius, staggering up and clutching his throat as if he already felt the noose closing about it. There are secrets to the tower which few know, said Conan. Anyway, I'd be a dog to leave Albiona to die because of her loyalty to me. I may be a king without a kingdom, but I am not a man without honor. It will ruin us all, whispered Servius. It will ruin no one but me if I fail. You've risked enough. I ride alone tonight. This is all I want you to do. Procure me a patch for my eye, a staff for my hand, and garments such as travelers wear. End of chapter 8